Welcome back to New View EDU, a podcast from the National Association of Independent Schools on what's next for school leaders. I'm Tim Fish, Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. And I'm Lisa K. Solomon, author, futurist, and designer in residence at the Stanford D School. Welcome back to season two of New View EDU. Lisa, it is so great to see you again. I can't wait to get our conversation started with our new guests. Tim, it's wonderful to be in conversation. We have some amazing guests lined up this season, and I'm so excited for the new formats that you'll be experimenting with. Yeah, you know, we're going to have Donna Oram back a couple times this season. We're going to be welcoming Caroline Blackwell, the Vice President for Equity and Justice at NEIS, into one of our conversations. And I'll even be doing a recording of a keynote address at the NEIS annual conference. That's going to be a lot of fun, Tim. And as always, we'll have robust show notes for each episode to help school leaders and educators take the ideas back to their communities in actionable ways. All right, let's get started with season two of New View EDU. Societies depend on our ability to, quote, play well together. That is at the heart of Jill Violet's visionary work. Jill is a serial social entrepreneur, author, speaker, and visiting scholar at the UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. She is the founder of Playworks, which has supported over 2 million kids through play-based programs. Her latest book, Why Play Works, dives into the research and case studies of play. Jill, welcome to New View EDU. Thanks so much for having me. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, as I was preparing for this conversation, I started thinking about play. And, you know, some of the first ideas that came to mind for me was lower school, recess, and children. That play is often associated with kids. And, you know, I'm probably not the only one who thinks about that. But as I was thinking more about you and your work, you really have a much broader understanding of play. So I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Is that something you often see as people think about play? Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say too, lower school humans absolutely rock. I would suggest actually that the world would be a better place if like humans who are used to like working with lower school people were also working with Congress and were like dealing with us in the workplace and, uh, you know, at sort of designing the experience of being in high school too. So I take no, no offense. And, uh, but yeah, I think I believe that play is a force that makes us human and that that is relevant to our youngest humans as well as our oldest and everyone in between. Why do you think it's so important for children and adults? And I know this is, this is basically asking you to tell me all your body of work for most of your life, but really, why do you think it's so important? Well, you know, if you look at behaviors that survive evolution, right, and especially behaviors that are kind of risky, I think you can learn a lot about what's important. And so play is this fascinating human practice that despite the fact that we break our arms and other sort of bad things can happen when you're playing, it has persisted throughout, you know, you know, being human. And it is, uh, it has survived evolution despite its riskiness. And so that for me is the first thing that's sort of like, okay, let's look a little closer. And particularly in this moment, right, where we are globally, but in the United States dealing with issues of the pandemic, 
a moment of profound racial reckoning, political polarization, but I'd say just civic sort of polarization in a way that makes us feel more divided. I think looking at play and what it has to offer in this moment in terms of helping us learn how to get along, how to manage and mitigate fear, how to navigate conflict, uh, how to believe in one's own capacity to make change when, when you feel that it is called upon. I just think play is this sort of keystone activity that has just an outsized impact on everything else. Jill, it seems that the, there's so much research that supports this work. And of course, you've been putting it into practice. All the things you mentioned, play is good for well-being. Play helps us connect. Play builds trust. And as you said, at this moment, it feels more important and urgent than ever. And yet, I can't help but look at the decisions that a lot of schools make around play, which seem to be more regulated, <laughs> uh, shorter in duration, not integrated into the rest of their academic or developmental experience why they're at school. And I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit about why that's the case. Like if, if we know play is so important, it just feels so wrong to be making decisions to try to truncate it or minimize it in some way. Right. Well, and it's not, I think, disconnected from Tim's initial reaction, like, oh, this will be great for the little kids. You know, like we've always had ambivalent feelings about play and playful humans and playfulness as a society, uh, at least in the United States in particular. Right. And there's Kay Jameson's uh, professor at uh, Hopkins wrote an incredible book called Exuberant, where she talks about sort of this history of our very mixed feelings. And if you think there have been like some extraordinary leaders that um, over the years have exhibited a playfulness sort of bordering on mania, like the Teddy Roosevelts, who we simultaneously were like, whoa, amazing. And oh, mm, <laughs> sort of a little, that's a little sketchy. Like, you know, so, and I'd say that that, that that kind of reaction, like we're not totally comfortable with silly. We are a culture that, you know, in, in many ways still very much buys into sort of the Horatio Alger myth about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and it's diligence and hard work that's going to overcome obstacles. And so we value seriousness. So I think it's not particularly surprising that especially educators who are being held accountable to increasingly narrow sets of standards around what you know, people are hoping they will achieve with the kids during an increasingly complicated sort of framework for educating them. I just think teachers and people in schools are, they're in a really difficult position. And so I, I try not to vilify them for feeling like a rock between, like that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But I do try and figure out how can I help them understand that actually thoughtfully, intentionally integrating play into what people do in schools will actually help them be more successful in uh, the things that they're being held accountable to. I love that, Joe. It's such an empathetic response to this moment. And I often think even for school leaders who this podcast is really intended for to help them think about new questions, to make different choices in the classroom and within the entire school environment, I think how rare it is where school leaders are facing a difficult problem and think, this is really hard. Let's go play a game. <laughs> they just, it's just not our instinct to say, you know, like if we want the fastest way to unleash new ideas, connection with each other, spirit of possibility, it's not hunkering down necessarily in the boardroom. I'm not saying that's not important, but we, we forget about this, you know, just incredible human opportunity we have. 
for school leaders, I would offer too that not only does actually play offer a really powerful model for just all the sort of challenges of reopening or whatever phase we are currently in as people are listening to this or re-reopening or, you know, you know, all the different sort of change, like actually thoughtfully considering the rules and the rituals and, and how we set up refereeing for schools in dealing with following certain uh, health and safety protocols. But even that aside, educators, they kind of get why play would be useful for you know, interacting with the kids. I actually, one of the things that's been most striking to me over the years working with schools is the extent to which actually educators playing together, that infusing games and a little bit of lighthearted play, and by play, taking the broadest definition, right? Any activity undertaken for no apparent purpose, right? Um, but infusing that into staff meetings, into like the dynamics of, of being grown-ups working together to solve what can sometimes feel like an insoluble challenge. Yeah, Jill, I've been playing with this idea in my head for the last several months, this idea that I call the journey to transformational learning. I've been curious about, like, what does transformational learning look like? And one of the works that has really inspired me again has been the work of Mihai, Csikszentmihalyi, and Flo. I read it in graduate school, and then I just picked it up again. It blew my hair back, right? He talks about this notion of flow, and he describes flow as really the optimal experience, this sort of space when time disappears, when we confront a challenge, we lean into some real complexity. And in that context, our troubles melt away, and we're sort of lost in this engaging experience. And for me, as I was reading your work on play and was thinking about it, I was like, play is flow in some ways. And I think back when I would play as a child and when I play now that I'm sort of, you've helped me understand when I am and how I should be playing in my own life now. I think about it has a lot to do with the same kind of state. And what's so interesting to me about, about his work is he says essentially that that notion of being in a flow state builds your psyche. It builds your self-concept. It builds sort of this resilience that you need to go out into the world. Do, do, am I, do you see that connection as well between the two? Absolutely. I mean, I, when I, in the book, when I'm writing about why play works, it's all, it's really about trying to, like, I set out by saying, look, defining play is not like a, it's not a gimme. It's like, there's a lot of, you know, disagreement, but I think those, the way you're describing uh, what Csikszentmihalyi said about like being in the totally caught up, the loss of sense of time, the, the, the caught up in the moment. Um, there's a great definition. Bernard Suits is this philosopher and he defines a game as the voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge. And I, I just love that, like the critical nature of volition, like you've chosen this activity and the idea that it's, it's an attempt. It's not defined by succeeding or failing and, and this, this sort of the unnecessary challenge. And I think too, I just, you know, when you're talking about all this, I, I do think that there's something that's really critical to this moment when we're talking about equity in, in so many different dynamics. But if you look at who gets to play, it can be really illustrative about like who has power, who has access. And uh, one of the things that's been hardest over the sort of the 25 years of leading Playworks was recognizing the patterns of inequity around access to play. 
And so, and then well, here, but people, you know, people need to, to learn how to read, and you got to like, you know, people need to be ready to have hold down jobs and all this stuff. But I often ask, especially for grownups who are considering why play and why is it so important, to really think about your own like personal journey to figuring out who you were and what was most important to you and what you wanted to do with your life, what brought you meaning. And it just feels like time and time again, when people are telling me those stories, what comes up is that they were on some like ridiculous journey that made no sense to anyone else in their lives, except they had felt compelled to go off on some trip or to take some job or to do some program of some kind. And it was in this moment of sort of, you know, voluntarily attempting to overcome some completely unnecessary slash borderline absurd challenge that they actually really sort of uncovered their own essence. And so I just, I think that state of flow, I mean, what a gift to be given a passion for something that takes you out of yourself. I just, everyone should get that. That's right. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, one summer we were like, we were really hot and we were saying, I grew up in New Jersey and we were like, we, how can we get cool? And we thought, oh, if we're like down in underground, we'll get cooler. So we set out for weeks to dig this huge hole that was like eight feet deep in the woods. And all we wanted to do was sit in the bottom of it, right? But it was it was this just injure, and every day we'd get up and we'd just leave home and we would go dig the hole. But you're so right. Like there was this negotiation with my friends. There was a collaboration. There was no real apparent purpose, but we were committed to it, right? You know, my sense is that kids don't get to dig holes anymore in the same way, right? And I wonder if you're finding that as well. We're increasingly paved. Digging is a challenge, but yes, I mean, <laughs> but I, I, I'd say it's it's mixed. You know, I'd say it, it's sort of like the Truman candidacy. Like I, people are still kids are still playing. Uh, it is this intrinsically motivated thing. Kids are playing, um, and the pandemic was uh, again another thing that brought to bear inequities. Right, some kids got to play even more. Other kids had less access to play because of the pandemic and stuff. But I think. Schools, especially in this moment when they are reopening and trying to figure out, is everybody okay? What what do people need? You know, Lisa said something earlier about empathy and like, you know, leaning into that approach. I play does make that sort of evident and it and it creates nonverbal ways for kids to communicate both with one another and with the grown-ups in their lives, things that they need and things that they are experiencing. And so I, I would say I think it's still happening and I think it's still alive and well. I think as grown-ups it is our responsibility to create as many opportunities for kids to go out and dig proverbial holes as as humanly possible. Joe, when I hear you talk, I'm reminded of what I heard was a Plato quote. I still need to fact check it a little bit more, which is that we can learn more from an hour of play than we can from a year of conversation. And so again, it's this integratedness around how play actually acts as a flywheel for so many of the other things that we're trying to do in school. When you talk in your book about this, I think you say false choice between being rigorous and being student-centered and almost looking at play perhaps as an opportunity to be able to rigorously be (laughs) student-centered around supporting them. Yeah. And so I'll say one thing. Um, when you first said a Plato quote, I, I think it is a Plato quote, but I heard you say Plato, and I'm like, 
Play-Doh is quoting? Like, I, play, I like heard the, exactly <laughs> the same thing. Okay, I, I thought like, of Play-Doh. Oh. When... <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what? Which is also an important play activity, yes. right? Yes. right, right. And building. Yeah, I think it, like even like just, again, like this whole uh, with the framing of reopening schools, like when we were talking to folks, how might you shift thinking about this moment as a sort of giant project-based learning where kids are actually in charge of figuring out social distancing, rules around mask wearing, how to hold one another accountable, creating classroom contracts that that really share an understanding that creates sort of a, a set of rules and, and sort of prescriptions that ultimately are designed to ensure that the, the most vulnerable uh, among us feel the safest. And I think one of the things that play tells us over and over again is given the right sort of stepping uh, stones to, to achieve that, uh, kids are capable of quite rigorous negotiation and, and compromise and, and insight around how to take care of each other. So often, I would say, better than their adult counterparts. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And I just want to come connect that to a concept you were talking about earlier with Tim around this voluntary attempt and that sense of agency, which comes up a lot in our conversations of, wait a minute, I am capable. And that, that play offers practice for those really important negotiation skills, connection skills. There's a really cool organization, um, this woman, Lenora Skenazy, who kind of got very famous briefly because she let her nine-year-old ride the subway and someone called Child Protective oh, the free range Was it free range, free range kids? Parenting. Yeah, free range kids. Yeah, yes. yeah. She is involved with this organization called the Let's Grow Challenge. And so they've this challenge they've created basically is that they do it in conjunction with schools and classrooms and and basically anybody can do it, but the, the, the basic essence is that kids decide, they come up with a proposal for some, to do something that they're not currently allowed to do. So it could be cooking with open flame or using knives or riding their bike to the store, like something that, like, frankly, in my generation would have been like not a big deal, but is, is less common these days. So they come up with a proposal and then they bring it to their family or their parents or whoever is their caretaker, and they work out an agreement about doing it. And, and then they present about the whole experience. And one of the things that sort of always struck me that she said to me about this whole thing was that often the people who actually find this exercise to be the most transformative are the parents or caregivers, right? That they are the ones who are the most like affected by the, just the, the transformation and the dawning awareness that their kids are capable of so much more than they often allow them to, to do. I just, can we just double click on that for a second? Because, you know, we, we try to take a look at the systems challenge, right? That we're after around trying to turn schools to be more student centered and towards the future. And I will, I will own being a parent myself. I think it's the parents that get in the way. So like if you had an open mic to parents to be like, it's okay if we ease off the rigor of the homework and we, and we lean into the play, like, like, what would you say to parents to get them to loosen up their worry about this? Well, so the first thing I would say is, as someone who works in this field, I have taken a strong stance on never offering parenting advice, because as the mother and stepmother of five kids, I feel like it was an automatic invitation for my kids to do something incredibly death-defying or risky or ridiculous. So, but, but, so my parenting advice is usually more play, water, and sleep, less sugar. Like those, that's really kind of where I like, that's kind of how I boil it down. Um, but I, I do. I mean, I just, 
I, I think our kids are amazing and, and they are capable of so much. And we need them so desperately to find their own agency and leadership. Like the, the very future of our planet is, is depending on their ability to do a better job than we have done. And so I, I, I feel like trust your gut. They can do it. You know, it makes me think about my own parenting. And my wife and I used to always talk about what we call the blessing of boredom with our kids. You know, this notion of like, oh, I'm bored, I'm bored. And we would just try to let that sit. And our sense was that when we did, often, those great games or play or something would emerge from within our kids. But you almost needed that boredom as like an on-ramp to unlock that play. And when our lives were super scheduled, it wouldn't happen, right? Because there was only these little these little windows of time where they didn't get to sort of create, open up and create. Do you think there's something to that blessing from boredom? Oh, absolutely. And not just for kids. Like Daniel Kahneman writes all about that, like to be an amazing creative, you know, philosopher, or writer, or like designer, like being slightly underemployed is like the single best thing you can do for creativity. Right. So I, I absolutely believe it's true for kids. But I, so many things, though, I would just say it like over and over again. It's a practice what you preach thing. Like I would get on my kids about being on their devices and the hypocrisy escaped no one in my household. So we had a basket by the front door and we were all supposed to put our phones in the basket when we came home, at least for like the first 30 minutes to transition from whatever we were doing. Now that we don't all leave the house in a regular, predictable way, it's, it's slightly different. But I, I just absolutely think a little bit of boredom, a little bit of less busy, busy, busy nothing could be better for kids and, and probably nothing could be better for grownups. Joe, I want to transition a little bit or really build on this foundational conversation about play to democracy, which is I know where you're spending a lot of your time now and just, again, some very revolutionary, imaginative ways. And I want to read a quote from you where you say, play is how we learn to navigate the complexities of social connection by enabling us to build the foundations of trust and empathy the experience of play is one of the best ways to learn the skills of being an engaged participant in democracy. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what fuels you around leaning into democracy and trying to make some of the connections of the work that you're so steeped in in play to support where we're going next. Yeah. Well, I, I will say that I do fundamentally believe that education is perhaps the single most important pillar of our democracy, right? So other people, when I'm like, I've been, I've been making this pivot uh, and I'm currently leading a fellowship at, uh, at Haas that's bringing together uh, grad students from the policy school and the business school to lean in around infrastructure challenges facing democracy innovation groups. And people are all like, oh, that's great. You're a social entrepreneur. You've, you've built organizations. But then at some point they're like, wait a minute, you would like leading groups around recess? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm often like, no, 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 it's really quite relevant. So, I mean, one, my work around democracy, I think it's, you know, first and foremost, it's a participation sport. Like you, democracy only works if we are collectively all believing in it. And it, it absolutely requires our ongoing care and feeding. And so in some ways, that's exactly what play is about. Like, the key to actually playing is showing up, you know? And so there's that on some level. I also think navigating a world in which you 
recognize how much you need the other humans with whom both are, that are both on your team, but also the ones that you're competing against, right? You are absolutely at cost purposes with the, the team that wants to win at, over you. And yet that can be achieved in a way that is really puts respect and mutual admiration and frankly, just a, a larger sense of deep interconnectedness and need right at the center. And so I, th I think we've lost that. I, I've joked, I am a rabid Golden State Warriors fan. My relationship to basketball, I think some might say is not entirely healthy, um, but I can still love the Warriors, but have respect for LeBron James as an amazing basketball player. And so part of me is like, and the NBA is not a perfect institution, but like how might we make our potty politic a little more like the NBA? So I, I think just having that in the background, like it's not impossible. Like we, we actually can do this. And, and I think, you know, we've, we've made mistakes along the way. I think the American democracy has always been an experiment. Some aspects maybe need to be rethought. We've gotten a little sclerotic in our willingness to be innovative in democracy. But again, a playfulness, a, a willingness to experiment, uh, a sort of a an openness to tapping creativity and how we do it. Like, and again, it's like, think about if you are an educator listening about the kids, if you think about kids playing, their like ability to self-handicap, like Jill and Tim, you switch sides. Like that's a pretty nuanced human interaction or like, Ooh, this rule's not working. Let's, let's change it up so that like this are the boundaries instead. Like that spontaneous sort of reimagining of how we work together. That's what's needed for us to to navigate this moment. Just having this vision, Jill, of you going down to Washington, D.C. and like organizing a really big game of dodgeball right now or maybe blob tag. Maybe just rock, paper, yeah. scissors. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've outlawed tag in some places in Massachusetts, so you can't joke about tag anymore. <laughs> Noted. You know, do you see, though, Jill, and, I, and this is just a riff on what you're saying, but like people will often see like, oh, no, no, no. Like this is not the time for play. Right. Like like this isn't fun and games anymore. This is this is now work Right? you hear that all the time. How do you respond to the folks who say play? You know, that's that's frivolous when we're up against some of the big challenges that we face in this world today. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I mostly go right headlong at it. And I, and nothing could be farther from the truth. I think play is actually how we build the trust and rapport that enables the kinds of hard decisions and difficult conversations that are really called for in this moment. But that idea that we would suddenly going from being in a place of like dug in inability to like talk about anything to like profound dialogue, that feels to me, well, just poorly designed. Like I think actually play is the necessary step and not like, not super silly, like, weird, like making people uncomfortable levels of play, but just like engagement to no apparent purpose where you actually have the chance to become familiar, to get to know people and to, to begin to build the trust. I want to build on that, Jill. You have this great point in your book where you talk about play being the original amateur activity, right? And have, sometimes we look at that, we've actually used that, oh, that's so amateur, like it's a negative thing, but you actually reframe say, actually, the root of the word is really in Latin to love. And so this, this sort of like 
inc- you know, getting back to like being inclusive, being welcoming, tapping into the incredible energy of, of a beginner's mindset. And, and you really go into saying like, wow, it really matters how you feel about it. Yeah. And I, and I think that's part of the challenge right now with our democracy. Like our, our politics have become a prof- professional activity. And those of us who are not professionals have lost sight about how we might be engaged beyond sort of tweeting or like, you know, like sort of sideline sort of peanut gallery kind of, but, but in fact, you have to be an amateur citizen. You have to do it for love. You have to do it from an intrinsic belief that you and the people you care about will benefit from your engagement. Jill, I feel like over the course of your career, you've constantly taken something that seemed in plain sight and was willing to be like, well, what if it was this way, right? And you've already even done this a few times in this conversation, right? How might we, right? How might, how might we reimagine? One of the areas I just want to touch upon, because I know it's a, it's a big passion of yours, is building in resilience in our schools through substitute teachers and substantial and, you know, and, and we're seeing that just like, you know, in plain sight that we are going to have, we are experiencing massive staff shortages, that the pipeline of teachers is highly at risk. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your work at Substantial and why it's so important. Yeah, I like the way you framed it. It sounds so much better. I often think of myself as a moth drawn to flame for the most like ridiculous and like unsexy challenges. <laughs> so, um, yeah, with substitute teaching. So the story was that in leading playworks, I'd be out visiting schools, and time and time again, during a school visit, a, a principal at some point during the the visit would pull me aside and, in a tone of quiet desperation, would say could I borrow my Playworks coach just for a brief period of time to fill in because I haven't been able to get a sub or no one's consistent and I've been farming the kids out to other classes and your person has such great rapport with the kids and my staff, my teachers are going to leave me. And I'd be like, no, (laughs) no, they can't do that. That's not the answer. But it happened in so many different disparate settings that got me curious about it. So I spent a year as a fellow at Stanford at the D School, getting the chance to be immersed in the the process of human-centered design by asking the question, how might we redesign the substitute teaching experience for everybody? And it was just a luxurious year of getting to interview people and learn about the sector, and then ultimately launched this nonprofit called Substantial Classrooms and wrote a book also by the same name, came out just before Why Play Works. And, you know, I think what was so amazing and and won't be surprising at all to this audience is that there are bright spots out there. Like there are people who are doing it well. And I, I guess I am convinced that there are some levers in education that are often overlooked, but that if you tweak these like small things in manageable ways, they have this outsized return on the investment that you've made in making the change. And I I think recess and play is one. I think similarly, having great coverage for classes when teachers are, are not able to be in the classroom, that that also just is a game changer. I don't know if it's ironic or it's been this moment in time, right, where the staffing shortages have been really intense and everybody who was subbing has been pulled in as a full-time teacher. And now they're making, like, I think the governor of New Mexico is you know, subbing and they've brought in the National Guard. It's, we feel sort of brilliantly prescient on some level. That's tragic. We think we, it was already there. Just people weren't talking about it as much. I, I will say too, though, that it's been 
challenging, and I think this is this is happening in a, a number of different moments in education. It, we, it's a crisis right now, right? And so people don't necessarily want me to hear they don't want to hear me say things like, okay, so you really actually need to fundamentally change the experience of being a substitute teacher. They're like, no, 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 I just need a body right now. And like, so I feel like I've been somewhat unsatisfying as far as a responder in this moment. But, you know, I think in moments of crisis, we have historically as a nation risen to the occasion and made great changes. And I think staffing right now in education is one of those things that is deservedly getting a second look. You know, Jill, it makes me think, you know, we said many times, and you've, you've said it a few times today, that sort of play is this idea of engaging in activity for no apparent purpose. And one of my great lessons from our conversation is, yes, there's no apparent purpose, but boy, is there a purpose. Yeah. Right. That's the it, magic it, thing. That's the, that's yes, the that's magic. That. Right. It may not be apparent, <laughs> right. but it has a lot of purpose. Yeah. You know, there's so much great material out there. And I loved one of your TED talks that you did several years ago at TED Med. And at the end of that TED talk, I'm going to quote you back to you for just a moment. You say play matters. And it matters because it gives us a brief respite from the tyranny of apparent purpose. Play matters because it compels us to put a stake in the ground and say, I care. Play matters because it reminds us of our interdependence and gives us a chance to really see each other as people and in turn to be truly seen. It has, Jill, I'll tell you, it has been an incredible pleasure to to talk with you today. And I sort of have one final question for you. As you look out at education, as you think about K-12, as you think about the work you're doing with Substantial and Substitutes and your work with play, what are your hopes and dreams for K-12 education in the future? Well, I think my, my greatest hope is that we give ourselves, one, permission to really design the the experiences for the people who are involved in education, whether that the students first and foremost, but but the grownups who are there doing it, that we do that from a place of deep empathy. And so building learning that is relevant, that is driven by the students and student-centered, but that is delivered in a in a way that makes it possible for the grownups who are tasked with delivering this education, it creates a, a, a viable way to operate day to day, that we aren't asking the humans who work in our schools to be superhumans who are really doing work that in corporate America would be done by two or three people. You know, so it, it, I, I guess I, I'm hoping that we come to recognize that actually the education of our our youngest citizens is foundational to our ability to navigate the current challenges we seek, whether that's climate or misinformation or all the myriad things that are worrisome in this moment. That ultimately educating our young people well, it's, it's the only hope that we will actually address any of these challenges. But to do that, you need humans who are cared for as well. And so I guess just a whole redesign that that is just a little more loving <laughs> would probably be what I'm hoping for. I love that, Jill. I mean, you carry such an enduring, optimistic, empathetic, and caring belief in the human spirit. 
I mean, everything you do. I mean, it's infectious. So I just want to thank you so much for being with us today, sharing a little bit about where you're spending your time and giving us some new questions to ask about how we might really re-examine how we're supporting our youngest humans in the best way possible. So thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Jill, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Tim, I can't imagine a better way to kick off season two than this conversation with Jill Violet. What an incredible force for good. Yeah, you're so right, Lisa. You know, I came away from this episode with this reinforced idea that play is integral. You know, I love the way she talked about play is the way we learn to navigate the complexities of social connection by enabling us to build the foundations of trust and empathy. It just that really resonated with me as we think about this moment of where our schools and our school leaders are. There's something so simple yet so profound about Jill's perspective. And I love that it doesn't require extra resources or expensive equipment. It's really returning to some of the basics of how we learn and grow. Yeah, I can't wait for our next episode, Lisa, where we'll be talking about how we shape the future with Ruth Wiley from the Center of Science and Imagination at ASU. See you all next time on New View EDU.